Hello and welcome to episode number 59 of the Agro-Innovations podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. Prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast on July 27th, 2009. Today is Monday. This podcast is also being broadcast on Red House Art Radio, which is a streaming internet radio station with a lot of innovative programming, including the Agro Innovations podcast. I will include a link to Red House Art Radio on the show notes for this podcast, so you can go out and check out some of their good, innovative programming. Now, before we get started with this podcast, just a couple of pieces of information that may be useful to our listeners. One is I have put a link to a website that talks about modified relay intercropping. And Mike Mulvaney in this coming uh, interview talks a little bit about that, so you might want to check that out if you want to know more about what that is. And also topiary, which Mulvaney refers to in the interview, if you don't know what that is, that's actually shrubs that have been shaped into animals and other artistic forms. For this episode of the Agronovations podcast, we are joined once again by Mike Mulvaney, who is a PhD candidate in soil science at Auburn University. Now, Mike, you have the distinction of being the first repeat guest on the Agro-Innovations podcast. The honor is mine. <laughs> um, and I should also mention that there is an interview out there when uh, we first started collaborating uh, with some of this stuff. You actually did a, a very early interview, podcast interview, about loblolly pine and some of the other pine trees in the Southwest. Um, southeast. The Southeast, yeah, that you know, a lot of the current listeners of the Agro Innovations podcast might not have had a chance to listen to. So at some point, maybe uh, I should rebroadcast that via the Agro Innovations podcast. Uh, yeah, I understand that's still on your uh, still on your website up there somewhere. So probably people could find it if they wanted to. Actually, I don't think it is. Um, oh, okay. I think I took that off of there a while back. Uh, but like I said, I, I'd be happy to, to rebroadcast that, especially when I'm needing some material. So today... We're going to be talking about China. Uh, you visited China for a month, and just tell us what you were doing there, when you were there, and uh, how well you were there for a month. So just tell us a little bit about that. Well, Auburn University was having a collaboration with Northwest A&F University out of Yangling, China, which is in Shanxi province. It's in the middle of China, west. Um, it's in the same province as Xi'an, which is basically in central China. Xi'an was the ancient capital of China for 2,000 years. Um, the area was very interesting. Oh, f let me explain a little bit about why I was there. Uh, Auburn University invited me to partake in a, uh, we call it a Maymester course. Um, and that's a one-month course studying overseas. One of our professors, Dr. David Weaver, was teaching plant genetics there. So we had four graduate students who attended him and took the course with him. And uh, I was lucky enough, honored enough, to, and happened to be in a position where I could take advantage of that. So we spent a month there taking, uh, taking in all the sites, um, as well as studying plant genetics. Um, the area that I was in was very interesting agriculturally speaking because it happens to be one of the original centers of plant domestication by humans uh, and animal domestic domestication by humans uh, according to 
uh, Jared Diamond in his book Guns, Germs, and Steel, he account he credits uh, that area for domesticating plants about 8500 BC and animal domestication was about 8000 BC. So uh, and independently evolved uh, agriculture there. So when you're talking about agricultural sustainability, which is a huge buzzword these these days. Uh, I think that's a very instructive part of the world to to be looking at the agriculture there. So yeah, they uh, there was a lot to be learned there. Well, tell us about the season that you were there. Um, I was there during May. The area I was in was mainly a wheat producing area. That wheat normally we use wheat for bread or for pasta. Well, in China they don't have ovens apparently not in the area that I was in we didn't see a single oven the whole time what they they'll steam things or boil them um and what they do is they create noodles out of this out of this wheat um when we were there we were they were just right when we were leaving they were bringing in the harvest for for the wheat um so we got to see you know full good stands of wheat we got to see a lot of um uh, roguing of wheat, hand roguing of wheat. I'm not sure if people are f still familiar with that process. I think our probably grandparents knew better what roguing was. It's where you're going through the field and physically by hand pulling out the the uh, plants that you don't want in your germplasm for the next year. Um, so that was very interesting to see. We were also, since we were on a university, we saw a lot of agricultural research going on. We saw a lot of uh, wheat Research, intercropping, plastic, a uh, lot of relay intercropping research going on, a lot of agroforestry uh, research going on, a um, lot of domestic, uh, on a commercial scale, you'd see a lot of greenhouse production of horticultural crops, vegetables, um, fruits and vegetables. You'd see watermelons being grown inside the greenhouse, growing vertically towards the ceiling that they would string up. Um, hanging them by wires across the ceilings, you can just imagine the amount of labor that's involved. I mean, it, it was it was very impressive to see greenhouse watermelons being grown vertically. Well, that's something that immediately comes to my mind when you say, well, just when you're talking about these things, and I think that a lot of people have an image of China in their mind where manual labor is a lot more abundant. Did you see uh, that how it played out in the agricultural systems there? Oh yeah, absolutely. We we would see laborers out there hand weeding all the time. I mean, and working all you know, there's no 9 to 5 Monday through Friday. It's 7 days a week till dusk, you know. It, well, I mean, I suppose farming like that isn't it's like that in the United States too, but you know, whereas we might be able to accomplish a wheat harvest with a crew of one or two for a, you know, for a huge amount of acreage, you'd see, you know, I remember taking video of a probably two acre field with 50 people working, working in that field. They had one small combine, probably a, probably an eight foot combine. So it was a pretty small combine. And then all it would do is it'd make two passes across the field. It would dump off the wheat. Um, and then, you know, somebody, they, they'd dump it off and another couple would come up there and hand bag it, sew up the bags in the field by hand, you know, carry it off to the edge of the field, load it up onto a a fancy motorcycle, really, and, you know, that had a, a, 
a, like a pickup truck back to it, and then they haul it off to wherever they're going, and then somebody else is coming in picking up the straw and hauling that off. So a lot, a lot of manual labor. Uh, cotton, we saw cotton processing. I didn't actually see any cotton production going on there, but we did on a bike ride out of town one day. Uh, we did come across a cotton uh, cotton cleaning facility or a cotton processing facility, I should say, where the cotton comes in. People are sitting there on the sidewalk cleaning up the last little bits of, of cotton. Now, their cotton's a lot cleaner than our cotton because their cotton is all hand-picked. Our cotton, and they get a premium for that. Our cotton is, you know, has a lot more trash in it, so we don't get the kind of premiums for their that, that they get uh, for their clean cotton. Of course, you know, then they'll sit there and they've got hand laborers picking through the rest of the cotton before it goes through the... Uh, before it goes through the processing to be bundled up and set, sent, sent off to the textile companies. So a lot of hand labor. Um, obviously, with relay intercropping, it's a, it's a lot harder to do those kinds of systems when, it's, when you've got mechanized agriculture. If you've got hand agriculture, you can go in there and harvest what you need to harvest and leave what you need to leave. Um, so it, it was just interesting seeing that kind of agriculture there, whereas I don't know if you see it very often here. Well, that brings up a point, maybe a sort of dichotomy that we have in our minds. On the one hand, you're describing this agriculture that seems, at least on its surface or, or based on what you're describing, less dependent on fossil fuels, less subject to petrol collapse or you know, less vulnerable to that. And on the other hand, we have this other image of China as this rapidly expanding industrial superpower that is rapidly expanding its capacity and you know voracious appetite for fossil fuels what uh, what are your thoughts on that yeah that's a very good point their agriculture it, it's true that their agriculture is less dependent on uh, petroleum based inputs than our agriculture. That's that's true without a doubt. Um, on the other hand, and, and and you know that being said, you'd you'd be walking by some of these agricultural production areas, and you'd see huge composts. You know, just you know maybe half acre pits where they're composting dairy manure and what other re any other kind of residues that they're putting in there. I don't know. Um, course there's a language barrier this it's awful hard to to get some translations but uh you know you're also my sense is that you're seeing a, a lot more dependence on on petroleum based inputs as well a lot more fertilization you know talking to talking with some of the professors there you know who did speak english at the university um they're becoming a lot more dependent on nitrogen inputs and, you know, tractors and things like that. Granted, they're not on the scale that we're at. Uh, and, and, you know, they also have, you know, they have a billion people that they have to employ. So, and a lot of them are agri agriculture related. Um, so there's, there's the, there's the dichotomy of if you've got an, if they become more dependent on mechanization and, and, and by extension petroleum, what what's going to happen to you know the millions and millions hundreds of millions of people who are now employed in the agricultural sector um so anyway yeah those are those are all very interesting questions 
um, that I'm probably I, I'm certainly not an expert on on any of uh, the socioeconomic ramifications of petroleum-based agriculture, but I would say that's going to be an issue that they're going to have to deal with, you know, especially if they want to compete on the world marketplace and and they're competing very effectively. Um, you know, they're certainly going to want to make things more efficient on uh, uh, for agricultural production. So yeah, that's going to be an issue they're going to have to deal with. But let's talk about how this is going to play out in practice uh, by drawing people's attention to how agricultural land is distributed, mm. how planning is done for agriculture. Uh, mm -hmm. You have some insights and a little bit of observational experience with that as well. Give people a little bit of a description of, of how that plays out in China, and it's really quite a different system than what we might see here or, or even someplace in South America. Yeah, yeah, it it is. We in China, you don't actually own the land. The land belongs to the government, and the government allots you land. Um, there's when when you're producing. I, I I just thought it was fascinating. They the government actually tells you what you can and cannot grow. Um, they tell you where you can and cannot grow. Uh, of course, they don't have you know, an EPA or anything like that or, you know, to, uh, to deal with. So, you know, maybe environmentally there might be some environmental damage going on or maybe they do it better than us. I, I, I couldn't say. But the, in, the, the, in the end, the government tells you what you can plant and where you can plant. They give you about four hectares. Um, they're called – they measure them in woos. It's equivalent to about four hectares. And you get a four-hectare plot for a family of four. And in, on that plot, where, in the immediate area where I was, you were allowed to grow wheat. That's what you were allowed to grow, at least when we were there. I think you grow – I think they can also grow corn. Uh, but everybody was growing wheat. Well, let me just stop you briefly and ask you, are these systems that have enough rainfall to produce the crops, or are they under irrigation? They are under irrigation. The – you know, this this area has been under agriculture for some 10,000 years, so – They've got a pretty good, you know, the land is all terraced. Um, it's pretty, I'll say it's flat. There's a valley, but where, you know, when you're going down into the valley, it's just, it's a series of terraces. And all the, you know, every square inch of, every square foot of land is, is being, is under some kind of production. Um, you know, when a family, you know, even if they're producing wheat, you know, they, they may kind of bend the laws and produce a little bit of, you know, rate, you know, when they open their door, they might have a little four foot square, square patch of, uh, you know, vegetables. And they might produce a little bit of tomatoes or something like that, uh, some beans. Um, so I, I think technically that's illegal because they're not supposed to be producing vegetables. But as I think as long as it's kept on a very small personal consumption basis, uh, I think the government, you know, they don't. They don't seem to bother about that, but um, you know it was very interesting because north of north of the river it was all wheat. And one day I took my bicycle and I rode south of the river, and all of a sudden the agriculture was all completely different. I mean, because of this basically an artificial bound because it's a natural boundary, but artificially created agricultural boundary by the government. South of the river it was all ornamental crops. It was. Um, 
you know, Japanese maples, uh, topiary, people growing topiary, giraffes and uh, rhinoceroses and uh, right in their front yard, you know, again, using every little bit of land because that's what they were allowed to grow apparently south of the river. Somebody drew a line saying, okay, north of this you do that and south of this you grow horticulture crops. So uh, it was very interesting to see that kind of demarcation. Now, did you get a sense that these demarcations are fairly arbitrary, or are they based on some kind of advanced, you know, GIS planning where they're uh, doing some kind of spatial suitability indexes for different crops based on soil yeah. types and rainfall? You, I mean, what what was your sense of that? You you would like to think that there was some planning going on there, but my sense was that uh, that was not the case. Um, just because of the ubiquity of the particular crops that are going in, you know, it, you're talking about say the say the river is a hundred hundred meters wide. You cross the river, you know, the rainfall pattern isn't going to be different on one, you know, within a couple hundred meters of the river. Uh, so I, I think that was pretty much just, you know, the government lays down the law. You know, they say, look, we need this much of horticulture crops. We need this much for wheat, we need this much cotton, we need this, you know, okay, these people are going to produce this, and that's probably, you know, again, I'm not an agricultural economist, but uh, I imagine, I imagine that it, it, it seemed fairly arbitrary to me, but now the planners would probably disagree with me, but uh, I don't know what planning went into making those decisions. So a system like this, where the central planning, I mean, one of the things that, that I think about is the you know the concept that innovation happens when different people are experimenting with different things now the sense that i get is that this is more the research institutions are doing this or that to come up with a very specific policy for the central planners and then the central planners can say you can intercrop this but you have to seed it at you know so many pounds per acre and at such and such a distance between the plants and, you know, the intercrop, the row of this crop should be such and such width and the row of the other crop. So you see where I'm going with this. I mean, is that yeah, how you see that it works? I don't think the government works? micromanages quite to that degree. I mean, if you go to a seed supply store in China, they, you know, they've got improved varieties. And I think the, you know, the, the producers have uh, incentive to make, you know, to make their crop good because, you know, to produce a good crop. Because when they bring it to market, they get to, you know, they, they reap the rewards, you know. They don't own the land either, so they don't have that expense to, you know, they don't have to pay for the land. They don't have to rent the land. They don't have to buy the land. You know, they can, they can rent more land if they want to from a neighbor of theirs. Say their neighbor wants to work in the city. They can go ahead and, you know, they can go and work in the city and then say, hey, neighbor, do you want to, you know, use my land this year and... You know, so they, there's there, those kinds of arrangements go on, but uh, I don't think they're I don't think the government is telling them you know what row spacing to use now. Well, I mean, it makes me think of like NRCS cost share. You know, if you want to get this cost share, you have to do this and that, and you can leave your cattle on you know the BLM allotment for such and such a time at this set stocking rate, and if you're a day over, then you know you might lose your allotment. So. You know, the U.S. government right. is somewhat guilty of doing this central planning stuff as well, even though you wouldn't know it by listening to the, to the right-wing talk radio. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I really, you know, I, 
it I, I like to be careful when I'm comparing two countries uh, because you know nobody has all the answers some there's some things that they're doing better than us and there's some things that we're doing better than them and to me the perfect system is going to be a hybridization of all the systems the, we should we should take the best of all of the systems and uh, and apply it where it, you know where it can be applied or where it's appropriate to apply it um, you know for example you know in China the there's the wheat fields those are monocultures but apart from the wheat fields a lot of polyculture very small you know large large acreage of small plots of different crops which is going to help with their their disease pressure their insect pressure um, it's going to help integrate them into crop rotations easier. Okay, uh, so but they're allowed to do this. Yeah, like if they're in a, if they're in a vegetable producing area, that's what you know they'll produce lots and lots of different vegetables. I mean, obviously, it doesn't make a lot of sense to grow a half acre plot of wheat just because you know what do you you know what are you gonna make five loaves of bread out of it? You know, <laughs> so or they don't make bread, but uh, you know noodles at you're gonna make a few pounds of noodles out of it. <laughs> right, right. So you know it's it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So obviously the wheat has to be produced on a much larger area for vegetable production. Even in the United States, sure, vegetable production is often occurring on a lot smaller acreage. You know, so so it's not uh, like this is onion territory and you have to produce onions. It's it's more like okay, here you produce vegetables. Or ornamentals, right? Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's more, you know. Here, it seems to be. It seems to be, you know. Okay. Agronomic crops, ornamental crops, or horticultural. Or when I say horticulture, I should be careful. Uh, vegetable crops. Okay. So well, well, yeah. let me let me ask you. Uh, you said the farmer reaps the reward when they, you know, it's. You said it's in their best interest to have a good yield because the farmer reaps their reward when they take it to market. So. This is not a Soviet-style system where you take in your harvest and then they say, okay, well, here's your coupon to go get your food ration. You know what I mean? Where it's just everybody supposedly has an equal distribution of all goods and services. Yeah, my understanding, that that's not the case in, in my understanding in China. Uh, you know, when they, you know, they get to, they're not making much money, but... The money that the money that they get off of their produce, they get to keep. You know, they I didn't see rationing of food or food coupons or uh, anything like that. No noodle lines or anything like that. Now, they're not. You know, they're not doing great. You know, American farmers aren't doing great either. But, um, you know, they're 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 able they're able to feed themselves. Uh, and the situation probably gets a lot worse the farther west you go. This is pretty much. This area is pretty much the last outpost of of civilization. Once you go once you get much further west of Xi'an, there's really it gets it gets real rural real quick. It you know, so I, I'm not sure what the situations out there might be. They might have those kinds of systems in other parts of the country. And of course, just just a little bit of a disclaimer here, China is a, a huge country and as you mentioned, there's a lot of people there. Um and it's has a long storied history. Uh, we just recently watched the movie The Last Emperor, uh, which is about, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's about the last emperor of China uh, in the turbulent time in the first part of the 20th century. And what's so striking about that movie is what an utterly, you know, feudalistic society uh, China was at that time. 
on the one hand, but on the other hand, how rapidly all that was changing and how, you know, eagerly the country was was trying to modernize. And that's probably what Mao and the Communist Revolution and then later the Cultural Revolution was. So what you're describing is just a brief, you know, one-month snapshot of what you saw in China now. And I'm sure that it's they've experimented with different things and there's been varying levels of central planning and, you know, social breakdown or, or what have you through the past 100 or 150 so years. Um, yeah, I, I think you're probably, I think you're very right. I think the Chinese are very eager to embrace change. They're obviously becoming one of the world leaders, uh, you know, on, in, on the world stage, they're going to be very, very important players. Obviously they own most of our national debt. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be contenders and it, well, they already are contenders and, uh, and they know it. You know, so they're, I think they're very, you know, there's a lot of national pride and a lot, lot of, you know, saving face or, you know, reputation is very important in China. So uh, I think they're very proud to be known as uh, up and comers on the world stage. Absolutely. Well, I think between, it'll also be interesting to see how it plays out between China and Japan. Those are the two countries that own you know, the majority of uh, the T-bills that are out there uh, or, or own the U.S. national debt, basically, as you said. Two countries that uh, have a long storied history, two very proud countries as well, and uh, two countries that have been uh, historically at loggerheads uh, from time to time. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, that's, that's just a little aside. What other things about Chinese agriculture and the relationship with Chinese agriculture to their society uh, stuck out in your mind while you were there? Uh, well, we were on an, at an agricultural university, so obviously everybody had some kind of uh, uh, stake in agriculture within China. A, a lot of people want to go abroad, too, uh, to either further their studies or uh, you know, or get ahead, but it, it it's not so easy for them to do obtain the permissions from the government to do that. Um, so there's a you know they 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 understand there's a lot of opportunity abroad, but on the other hand, a lot of them realize that there's a lot of opportunity uh, within uh, within their own country, you know, and they they spend a lot of time doing a lot of research on you know crop improvement or. Uh, or improving cultural practices, you know, such as, you know, different, different, different types of relay intercropping and things like that. Uh, I did not see a lot of research going on, uh, regarding agricultural sustainability, like maybe <laughs> improving nutrient cycling systems and things like that. You know, for example, I saw a relay intercropping, this is an experiment station, uh, relay intercrop with a, a rotation of corn, cotton and wheat now notice there's not a single legume <laughs> you know and i asked how much nitrogen are you guys putting on here well it turns out they're putting on 300 pounds an acre so you know that's 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 a lot of nitrogen being put into the ground and i'm thinking why not just put in some beans put in some soybeans you know sure right. soybeans are very you know 
it so and, and I didn't see a lot of research going on with you know trying to improve nutrient cycling. What I saw a lot of research being done on was uh, improving you know total yield or making land use more ef efficient. I, I use that term loosely. Um, you know, trying to get more more produce out of an equal amount of land, uh, which is admirable. You know, we we could do well to to learn some of those techniques. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it would have been nice to see maybe more attention paid to you know, rather than just crop improvement, more yields, more uh, higher yielding varieties, maybe paying more attention to. <laughs> What, where's all this nitrogen going to come from? What's going to happen to it? What's its environmental fate? Um, and things like that. But uh, yeah, certainly everybody there is is impacted by agriculture, uh, especially out in the, the rural areas where we were. Well, we know already that most of the terrestrial nitrogen that gets put in soils is, uh, you know, human fixed nitrogen through natural gas. Uh, it has actually now exceeded the amount that is fixed or, you know, deposited through biological and natural processes. So if the Chinese take that ball and run with it, uh, you know, the nitrogen saturation problem is going to get, I guess, taken to a whole new level. Yeah. Uh, you imagine... You imagine the the profile of nitrogen leaching. Whatever doesn't get taken up by crops, all especially nitrate. You know, all that nitrate that doesn't taken up get taken up by crops gets eventually put into the groundwater and aquifers. And you dig a well and you drink that water and you're drinking all those nitrates. You know, that's the cause of baby blue baby syndrome and it's uh it's a real problem you know and when you're talking about nitrogen use efficiency by crops you know people put down you know they first of all they put down their the nitrogen you know say you put down uh, 100 pounds an acre 120 pounds an acre for corn or something now you put down 120 pounds of nitrogen all at once and how much of that is going to be taken actually be taken up by the crop you know you're really only talking about 30% nitrogen use efficiency. So, you know, where's the other, so 30% of 120, 40 pounds, where's the other 80 pounds per acre going? You know, that's all going to the groundwater. Well, that kind of pollution is underwritten by cheap fossil fuels because the farmer, yes. the farmer's attitude is it's better, I'll just be better safe than sorry. You know, that's the nice nitrogen nice. fertilizer is cheap enough for me to apply at that double or triple ratio. And, um, you know, well, the, the recommendations are coming from agricultural extension. So, you know, we, we agricultural scientists are making the recommendations for how much nitrogen to actually put down in the crop. Now, there's thing you can still put down 120 pounds per acre, but if you do split applications, that makes a lot more sense, you know. So if you're doing, you know, if you're going to put down, and nowadays with precision agriculture, it makes it a, makes it a breeze, you know. You can go down, you can lay down your herbicide, Right at the same time, right behind it, you can come down and put down your variable rates of nitrogen according to exactly what your crop needs. And a lot of farmers in the U.S. are going that way, you know. These, and they're not not just the Monsanto farmers either, you know. I'm, you know, we got farmers in 
Coleman, Alabama, who are, you know, we got farmers all over the place who are using this kind of technology, you know. So technology is going to have to play an increasing role in uh, nitrogen use efficiency. But for a country like China, who doesn't quite have the resources, or the farmers certainly don't have the resources to take advantage of that kind of technological innovation, they're going to run into environmental problems. Well, one one other note before we conclude here. There, you mentioned Jared Diamond at the beginning of this interview, and he uh, kind of coins a phrase called the photosynthetic ceiling in his book, uh, Collapse. And the concept here is that there's only so much photosynthetic energy that can be used, uh, and he, he cites um, a peer-reviewed article. So I dug that peer-reviewed article up to try to determine what exactly it was that they wrote about. And the picture that they paint is a little bit more nuanced than what Jared Diamond writes about in his Collapse book. The term that they use is human-allocated net primary productivity. And they have a map on there that shows uh, the total amount of net primary productivity that is allocated for human purposes on different parts of the globe uh, for fiber, food, uh, milk, eggs, you know, all the things that our civilization depends on. And it turns out that China and India are pretty much at the ceiling there. They are using most of the net primary productivity for human allocated purposes. So that kind of maybe sheds a little bit of light on why they're doing all this research on trying to get more out of less because they've started to, you know, hit that. Basically, what, it, what it's, it's basically a natural carrying capacity, and it'll be interesting to see how far they can push this envelope, how much they'll have to rely on, you know, just greater efficiencies through uh, better engineering and precision, and how much they're going to have to rely on fossil fuels to get that more out of less. And then at what point they're just going to completely hit the wall and not be able to get, you know, any more out of what they already have. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. Land is, like I said before, they're, they're farming every square foot they can. So they don't really have more land that they can put into production. So they want to get more and more out of it. And, you know, they want to get more out of it and they don't want to be limited by nitrogen. So go ahead and put down, you know, that, that the 300 pounds an acre uh, scenario was done on a, on a research station. Certainly they're not going to be doing that, you know, on the f small farmers aren't going to be putting down that much nitrogen, but, um, you know, they don't want to be, they don't want to be limited by, by some resource that's going to be available to them. So if they're trying to get more out of less, they're not going to try to put <laughs> less nitrogen down. They're going to try to right. maximize, you know, they're going to try to put down as much nitrogen as they can. Right. Well, the fact that they're experimenting with those levels, I mean, it just, it's indicative of where they're at. I think it's indicative that it's not going to be sustainable. <laughs> You know, there, I don't know how you get 300 pounds of nitrogen onto a field if you're using organic sources, you know. Sure. So. Okay. Well, Mike Mulvaney, thanks for joining us. Uh, uh, your observations about China, uh, definitely fascinating. And the first time we've touched on that topic here on the Agro Innovations Podcast and, you know, a part of the world that I've never been to, but would certainly uh, be as enthusiastic as you were to go there. And uh, definitely a lot of fascinating stuff going on there. Well, thank you for having me. I'm about out of time on this episode of the podcast. Just a few reminders. This podcast and all Agro-Innovations podcasts are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. You can learn more about that at creativecommons.org. 
There will also be a link to a discussion thread on the Global Swadeshi Network, so you can click through to that and talk a little bit about what some of the things that we talked about in this interview. You can follow us on twitter.com, twitter.com slash agroinnovations. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. Until next time, saludos. 